This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! Super Investors is brought to you by the Felder Report. Every week, I go through a ton of reading and research. And on Saturday mornings, I send out an email, which is the culmination of all that reading and research. Uh, it's basically just the five things I found during the week I, that were most uh, interesting or valuable. It can be a chart, it can be an article. Um, if you're interested in receiving something like that, just go to thefelderreport.com right there on the home page. Click join now and you'll be good to go. There are very few truly unique thinkers in the world, and almost none of them regularly train their gaze on Wall Street. Peter Atwater is one of those few. Whenever a major news story hits the tape, it's Peter's opinion I look to to begin to understand what it means for markets and the world because of the grounded and clear-headed insight he brings to the table. Three years ago on this show, he accurately forecasted the current backlash era we now find ourselves in. In this episode, he discusses where we stand in this process today. Peter also postulates how companies and markets might fare against the coming age of scrutiny. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Peter Atwater. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Jesse. You know, it's I, we were just talking before we started recording. I can't believe it's been three years, uh, you know, since I've had you on. I've thought many times that uh, it would be really fun to do uh, a weekly show if I had the time just to talk about a lot of the different things that are going on in the markets. And, you know, part of my reason for thinking that was that I would love to be able to pick your brain on a weekly basis <laughs> to find out what your, you know, your evolving opinions as to what's going on, on you know, with everything around, because you're one of the people who I, I, I just think you have a unique perspective and it's uniquely valuable. Thank you. Well, you, before we really get, I guess, into this, I... I um, I have to say thank you, uh, first of all, for you. You and Tom McClellan have kind of had a back and forth with the dad jokes on Twitter, which has <laughs> really added a nice light uh, to to some darkness. Uh, you know, it's been a dark time and there's been some, you know, Twitter is typically filled with trolling and things. And, and lately it seems a little louder than, than normal. So thank you to you and Tom for <laughs> for the dad jokes. It's been, been a nice relief. But um to, to, to get into you know what I what I really wanted to invite you to talk about, you seem to um, appreciate the power of narrative, how it relates to how we feel as a society, or it relates how we feel as a society, and understand how that evolves um, better than anyone else I know. Um, uh, two questions: First, how do you go about tracking this stuff? And second, how do you start putting some of the stuff you're reading and finding into, into a sort of context to create an understanding of how social mood is evolving? So one of the, the great opportunities today is that we have all of the social media that enables us to see what narratives are popular. Um, and, and so much of it is, is just a function of watching and reading headlines and reading tweet after tweet to get a sense as to where the crowd is uh, in terms of its its stories. And, you know, we don't we don't learn via fact. We only learn via story. And so I find these these narratives extremely helpful in what they say about us um, and and how we feel at any given time. I. I don't think stories change us as much as they reflect us. So I, I look at so much as, as a as a changing mirror that is out in front of us. And, you know, you're you're one of the only people who I've I think you're the only socionomics enthusiast that I've really come across. Um, but why, why do you think and you through your writing, it's obvious to, to, to start to see how. Um, this stuff is really powerful in understanding society and thus understanding politics and the markets and the economy and tons of other things. Why do you think socionomics is so underappreciated as a discipline? Because I think we as human beings believe that causality 
is something that we control. Um, we don't like the idea that events are random, that things are out of our out of our control. And so socionomics tends to, I think, force people to acknowledge that there's other things at work besides our own, you know, what we think is our own deliberate action. Um, and and little, little of what we do is, is deliberate. It's so often in response to things that are happening around us. And, and so it's, to me, it's just trying to look horizontally across the landscape and seeing things in culture and politics and business and trying to weave those together because that's that's where the that's where the real signs are you know the market is is simply trying to monetize those signs but i I don't think the market itself really you know it's it's a barometer and it reflects, you know, well, just like I think you tweeted a ton or write, write a ton, you know, the media reflects mood. Um, the markets also reflect mood. And, and these things are, are, you know, in a lot of respects, I think they're reflexive kind of in the Soros aspect, right? The, the mood, the, the markets can make us, you know, feel, uh, I guess this is, you know, part of the Fed's trying to create a wealth effect and, you know, let's boost the market to make people spend more. But I think one thing that socionomics, uh, I guess, recognizes is that social mood is is much more difficult to to change than simply, you know, creating a new policy, having a new president, um, you know, uh, whether the market's in a bull market or bear market. Social mood is kind of its independent uh, thing that's more of a uh, more of directing these things than being directed by it. Yeah, so socionomics would say that the selection of the president is a consequence, not a a contributing factor. So it it looks at the world in reverse, and I, and I find that really helpful. Um, it's hard. Um, it really goes against the the natural inclinations, but but it's it's really helpful to step back and to say, so what was it that the election meant in terms of our mood? And and those are those sorts of reflections, I think, are where you find really valuable information. And I think I think that's such an important point because so many people are looking at and I guess we saw it in the markets uh, last week during the election. We're recording here on Monday, November 9th. And, uh, you know, so many people were trying to scramble to create a narrative um, surrounding you know what the markets were doing and what was going on with the election. And I think it really does help. It's, it's a great point that you make to, to look at these things in terms of social mood as they're not necessarily um, sending, they're not necessarily, uh, they're symptoms, they're symptoms of, of, a, of a larger uh, issue. Yeah. And, and those, those symptoms, when they manifest, particularly at extremes, are really helpful. Um, you know, it's it's being able to look at you know massive call buy, buying in, in Tesla and being able to say, huh, that that's telling us that action itself is telling us a lot about how investors feel. Well, let's you know, it's a fast, perfect transition. I, I wanted to last time you were on last time we talked um, the I titled the podcast Welcome to the Backlash Era because that was something you were writing about and looking back, I mean, like I said, I couldn't believe it's been three years, but um, so much has actually happened since we talked that really uh, sh- uh, were, I mean, that, that turned out to be a very pressing call. I think we were back then we were talking about the Me Too movement and how that might grow into, you know, something much bigger. And uh, now that we've seen, you know, the protests over the last year um, from all different types of groups, um, I think it's fascinating to see that the backlash era has certainly evolved. Um, where do you see us in that uh, process today? So I, I see backlash just continuing to expand. Um, you know, that, that what we, when we don't have confidence, um, there are four natural responses, you know, fight, flight, 
freeze or follow. And so to me, the backlash movement is itself an expression of feelings of powerlessness. And what we've seen with the Me Too movement is that, you know, those that were overconfident have easily fallen to um, this manifestation of weak social mood where where women have have risen sort of from the ashes. Um, and that sense of powerlessness is what motivates us. That's that's what always takes us to the streets. And I think we we saw that earlier this summer with the George Floyd protests. Um, and I think they were an expression of much greater powerlessness than people realized. And, and I think we're we're really seeing that um, in a different way with the relief that we're that's manifesting uh, as a result of the, the Biden election. Um, you know, there's this wide sense of of relief among Democrats. But what is yet to play out to me is what does what does the election of of Joe Biden mean in terms of backlash now coming from the right? Um, does it does it manifest? Um, do, do those that have lost in this election go gracefully? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I think that that manifestation or not will be a really, really important indicator of social mood, because that'll tell us that that we are finding common ground if it doesn't happen, um, that we are inherently more centrist today than we've been. On the other hand, if we see mounting backlash, not only from the far right, but from the far left to you know, Joe Biden, the centrist, um, that's going to tell us a lot about where people really feel um, a- across the political spectrum. So I don't think the, the backlash era is behind us. Um, I'm just waiting to see, you know, I, I would love to, to think that it is. Um, but I feel like we need the passage of time to confirm that or not. Yeah. And to me, one of the most, I guess, important things I wanted to ask you about is in terms of this backlash era. I remember when we talked about this three years ago, um, I was kind of framing it or uh, looking at it in terms of, um, you know, an, a unified anti-elitist movement. Um, and, and I guess where it's it's hasn't you know, lived up to my expectation, it's kind of differed from what I expected, um, was we've seen more of this kind of devolvement into the divisiveness, the tribalism, um, and almost it seems like an infighting among less the less privileged. Um, you've argued that this, this you know, the, the I guess the disparity between up versus down, the, the K-shaped recovery, um, which you've helped to popularize, um, is even bigger than this left versus right. So, uh, you know, I, I guess, how do you see that evolving? I mean, there's clearly, uh, you know, very um, um, stark contrast and, uh, you know, serious, uh, I guess it's not even really a debate. I mean, I, I live here in Oregon and in Portland, you know, we see uh, in, in, in even small towns um, all through the summer, we saw, uh, you know, either Antifa, you know, show up or threats of Antifa showing up at, at rallies and then, you know, types, you know, proud boy types of people showing up in, in very small towns. And so there was, there's a very divisive left versus right. Uh, you know, I guess that's something I didn't see that kind of um, divisiveness develop as far as, as, as you know, through this backlash uh, type of movement. Um do you think we're going to see more of this divisiveness or do you think it will eventually evolve into a more of a unified anti-elitist movement? Um, I think initially we're likely to see more left-right, but I think that on, on a local basis, you're going to start to see individuals recognize that, that those on the far left and far right have a lot more in common than they have that's different. 
you know, they, they may, may want the outcome to manifest differently, but what both ends of that spec, the political spectrum are saying today is I don't feel certain and I don't feel powerful. I feel unheard. I feel unwelcome. And so I think that as, as conditions evolve, there's, there's a real risk that, that, that there is someone out there who could powerfully unify them um, to suggest that the, the real issues are, are wealth-related, they're education-related. And those are, those are bipartisan challenges, and that's, you know, I, I, it seems like that's probably very likely. I think it's a really great point that, um, you know, the, uh, the grievances on both sides are actually probably more similar than they are different. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, it does seem like there's an opportunity there for uh, some type of populist politician to, to rise uh, and, and really speak to that. Um, I want to transition a little bit to um, one of the other themes that you've you've written about um, a fair amount over the last few years is really this the age of illusion. Um, and I think you know the the way the quote that I, that I pulled from something you wrote, which I think does a great job of encapsulating this, is the past decade has been a gold rush in fakery, and uh, I, I think that's just a, a very interesting way to kind of frame what we've seen um, through this bull market since two thousand nine ten. Yeah, I I think that you know coming out of two thousand and nine, there was this immense hopelessness, and that was you know across the board. And what you started to see were individuals who sought to capitalize on it, um, whether they were celebrities, business leaders, political leaders. Um, there was this um, this sense of, of magic. Um, you know, I, I was fascinated by the whole blitz scaling uh, mantra out of Silicon Valley, for example, and the thought that you could grow anything to enormous scale um, and, you know, break, you know, move fast and break things that, that, that mindset, um, you know, very charismatic leaders uh, who were, were powerful and, and, you know, come right out of the, the, the cultural bandwagon of, you know, P.T. Barnum and Harold Hill from the Music Man. You know, those, both of those individuals, both, you know, in, in reality and in fiction, you know, they thrived in environments of low confidence. As, as I said earlier, we, you know, one of the responses I think we, we really don't appreciate enough is that the aspect that, it, you know, fight, flight, freeze and follow. We are so inclined to follow someone who provides a hopeful story when confidence is low. And, and I think with that, we have these fabulous platforms to do it. You know, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, um, where illusion, you know, creating appearances is easy and is almost magically seductive. And, and you know, what you've seen is this rise in celebrity culture where popularity is based on popularity. You know, there's, there's, you know, skills are, are far less important than notoriety. And that's, that's kind of what we've, we've seen is this massive, um, this massive popularity contests of celebrities. Um, and that the challenge is that there's very little behind it. It's very hollow, but it's a, it is the age of illusion. I, it's, I think that's the perfect way to frame it. I, I love that you parallel. Um, well, first explain, you know, the, how the environment was ripe for these people to, to kind of step in. But I also love how you parallel, right? We had the, in business, we've had these visionaries, you know, who have kind of, whether it's, you know, Elizabeth Holmes, Adam Newman, uh, Elon Musk, who've come in and basically just dazzled people 
with their view of the future. Um, but that's been paralleled in, you know, I think the, the quote that I, you know, that struck, stuck with me uh, from one of your writings was the retail version of the age of illusion was influencers. Mm-hmm. You have all these Instagram influencers and, and, uh, and these people have literally been making, you know, uh, a living, a very, in a lot of cases, a really uh, attractive living by being a quote influencer. Um, and, and, uh, and so that is, you know, uh, a clear reflection of, of social mood and people's desire to have somebody to kind of, uh, I guess, get through them through that, through that time. Um, where I, you've also written now that we're starting to see, and I guess with the fall of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and Adam Newman and WeWork, we're, we're kind of seeing the end of the age of illusion, um, Although a lot of these uh, illusionists still, you know, seem like they're able to keep up the illusion for now, um, but we're, we're transitioning towards an age of scrutiny, um, and you spell that S C R E W to me <laughs> every time I try to type that. Autocorrect fixes it. But uh, what, so, what is this age of scrutiny? What does this look like? And, and why are we now uh, headed for something like that? Yeah. So, so when I use the term scrutiny, spelled peculiarly, you know, like, like the, like the screw, um, confidence, when confidence falls, we naturally scrutinize more, um, falling confidence forces us to, to focus because things seem uncertain and, and that lack of clarity demands that we really pay attention more. But what's so different, I think about what we're experiencing now is there's a lot of anger and betrayal that it's that the frauds were so extreme and so widespread that as we're seeing institutions and individuals fall, people are pissed. Um, you know, a lot of money's been lost. Um, you know, there, there's just this this mounting sense of anger. And and I think that what it's that the trend is accelerating. Um, you know, I thought Jeffrey Epstein's downfall was significant, given all of the tentacles politically, um, in business, culturally. Uh, you know, Adam Newman, who you mentioned with WeWork, um, and now we have you know Wirecard in Germany, which was an extraordinary deceit, and so. I, I think that all of this illusion is now collapsing on itself. And, and I, I think what people fail to appreciate with, with illusion and with magic acts is that they require momentum. They require that you move from you know, the two-headed lady to the five-headed lady to the you know, 15-headed lady. There, there has to be, the, you know, the next act has to be enormous to capture the crowd. And so it's that audaciousness that that when it collapses, that's what's exposed more than anything. Is that it's not just a small fraud; it's a it's a massive one. And and with all the capital that's gone into the into the investment market and this this recovery, the, the financial losses are going to be staggering. It's just so hollow. Well, yeah, and, and I think that's one thing that's been really surprising to me. I think it's uh, Manias, Panics, and Crashes, uh, <clears throat> great book on on, on bubbles and, and whatnot, where they, they note that um, a lot of stock market crashes or major bear markets are precipitated by the uncovering of, uh, of a fraud. And it's been surprising to me, I guess, with, you know, all of these um, – you know, Wirecard and, and Luckin Coffee and uh, Theranos. And, you know, just it seems like we've had one in almost every area, every every market that you can think of. Um, and it and the market has the stock market generally has 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 been seemingly impervious. Um, how would you how, how do you think about that? Um, I think that people are still viewing these as one off events. Um, which to me speaks to the fact that, you know, we haven't seen the, the turn yet. Um, I think that 
um, you know, I, I thought, you know, Adam Newman was the, the beginning of the end. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think part of it is that for so many, if this fraud is true, it introduces existential risk. You know, that, that to believe that there is more than what's been exposed already uh, generates a, a level of, um, of, of doubt that is, it is too big to accept. And we're like that when we're highly confident. You know, if, if this is wrong, then, my God, everything else is wrong, too. Um, so we'll, we'll avoid those kinds of decisions, um, that kind of thinking, until we're forced into, into reality. And, and in some ways, I think Germany is dealing with that right now in the aftermath of Wirecard, that, that it, it's just truly too big to, to overlook. And it was, you know, and it had its the illusionists there had their tentacles deeply into the, you know, the government um, and things, and and so yeah, it's much more difficult for for I think Germans to dismiss. And I, um, and I, I, think I, I, I go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, we haven't had anything yet like, you know, if you think in the in the the dot com uh, bust, we had. WorldCom and Enron come to light during that bear market, and those really shook people's uh, faith in in uh, you know in, in the markets and in, in companies to to you know uh, be be what they say they are. Yeah, and I don't I don't think we've heard the last out of the payments space. Um, you know that environment. If you if we go back to two thousand nine, nobody wanted to invest in banks, so. If you wanted to be exposed to financial services, you went into Visa, MasterCard, and all of the, the payment companies. And, and so, I think that the payment space, more broadly, um, is was an environment that is just exceptionally ripe for fraud. Um, so, it, it concerns me when I see that Ant Financial is being constrained by the regulators because that that too suggests a. Uh, a level of hubris of overconfidence that is um, that needs to be corralled. And it seems like China has has decided to do something in that regard. Before the, the you know, it's it's one of those things. It seems like where there let's we have to nip it in the bud because the longer this goes without us doing something about it, uh, you know, the bigger the, the problem will get down the road. But there are a lot of these kind of I guess illusionist types of policies and things we've seen in business. Obviously, for influencers, the age of scrutiny is going to mean that they're going to need to find a, w- a different way to make a living, probably, uh, I would assume. But in, in terms of business um, and the markets, a, a lot of these illusionist types of policies you know, surrounding buybacks and financial engineering and offshoring just-in-time business models. You mentioned bl- blitz scaling, move fast and break things. What does the age of scrutiny kind of, I guess, mean for, um, you know, for business in in terms of these these types of illusionist uh, tricks? So I I look at the pendulum swinging back in a broad theme of, you know, the just in case economy. That if if illusion was highly profitable, you know, that this idea that you didn't need assets. You know, you just you, this massive redeploying of capital. What what you're going to want on the other side, what society is going to demand, it, are things that are very tangible. You know, they're going to want to know that there are things in the warehouse. In fact, not just things, but but potentially more things than you might need. You know, we're going to be very sensitive to shortages and scarcity, and and so. I, I think about it almost having a very parallel life to what we saw with the mortgage space and countrywide, where you know countrywide was at its core an exceptionally hollow organization, and it was inherently fragile when the music stopped, and so society responds by demanding that the banks have more capital, that the banks have, you know, more high quality assets, that lending be constrained moving forward. 
And I expect that we'll see very much the same for for big businesses overall. Um, and I think that whether directly or indirectly, um, the shareholder is going to pay an enormous price in this in this process um, as businesses are forced to deleverage, have more capital on hand, be less risk taking, grow more slowly. Um, you know, there are a lot of sort of reverse levers that, that will get pulled. And as I said, I, I think the mortgage space is a perfect uh, metaphor for what's ahead. Well, it's interesting to me that, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, you're focused on, on finance because I, I can apply this to so many other different sectors. But can you expand on that, on, on mortgage finance and, and, and uh, how you think that, uh, you know, the, obviously they're doing phenomenally well right now. We've seen, I think, how many IPOs in the mortgage origination and servicing um, sector. It's been, you know, I, obviously they look at it, the insiders there is, you know, let's make hay while the sun's shining. Um, you know, how, how does the age of scrutiny apply to them specifically? Well, I, I think it's safe to say that the mortgage companies that are doing well today are not the mortgage companies that were doing extraordinarily well in 2005. So that the, the system pushed risk Take, you know, the, a vast amount of risk taking out of the, the financial services industry as we knew it 15 years ago. And, and I think that we were very fortunate in that capital went into the housing market at the lows um, and that you saw new entrants go in. But I think those entrants are now at a similar peak as the old entrants were 15 years ago, that the incumbents were. And so this cycle has you know, made, made many incredibly wealthy. But I think that if we see the pullback in housing that I expect, the hollowness of today's successful businesses is going to be exposed just like it was 15 years ago. And, and one of the things that I don't truly think folks appreciate is how much risk in this cycle has been taken outside of the, the Federal Reserve System. This is, this is a, a non-bank gold rush, you know, whether you're an asset manager, uh, you know, a, a for-profit lender, that I, I just don't think we appreciate that the, the banks are far better off than their non-bank brethren as we stand here today. Well, it's it's fascinating to me to see a, you make a great point that uh, it, these are these are non-banks that are getting that are really the ones doing well in mortgage finance. I think of you know Rocket Mortgage, and I think of you know companies like SoFi. These you know, are kind of the you know, financial innovators. But at the same time, you notice banks are not lending anywhere you know, as, or as eager to lend uh, in any way that's close to what these non-banks are willing to do. And it reminds me of you know, investors you know, coming into their first cycle and you know, they're super eager to throw money at anything. Uh, whereas investors who have been through several cycles, you know, a.k.a. the banks, kind of look and say, hey, you know, now's not a great time to be lending a ton of money. Um, and, and so, it's, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to see that uh, there, there's, a, there's a real dichotomy there between experience and, and inexperience. And, and also, to me, I think one of the things that I find most common, maybe the most common thing on Wall Street is this idea of business models that are that are literally built on make hay while the sun's shining. We don't care if we blow up a year or two or three years from now, as long as we make as much money as we possibly can today. Um, 
But this has also been one of the attitudes of, of like uh, companies in Wall Street generally over the last uh, several years. You know, we've been talking about it in terms of finance, but I think another way that a lot of companies, I've been surprised at how many blue chip companies have used, you know, uh, debt finance buybacks to boost their stock prices over the last 10 years. Do you see this age of scrutiny targeting buybacks specifically? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the financial levers, the, the financialization of, of corporate balance sheets, I mean, it, uh, corporate balance sheets were really the last balance sheet left to trash. And, and I think Wall Street did a fabulous job of that, of, of just gutting uh, businesses. And, and, you know, to some extent, Jesse, we're, we're seeing that you know, the early casualties of this, you know, over-leveraged asset light business model um, unfolding in the, in the restaurant space, in the, in the, uh, in the retail space where businesses that were owned by private equity are shutting the doors or declaring bankruptcy um, almost eagerly. And, and, you know, one of the behavioral trends that, I'm watching very closely is bankruptcy because today there it's shameless. Um, you know, you can, you can file for bankruptcy as a CEO and nobody's going to blame you. Um, you know, you can, you can look and say, Oh, it was COVID did this. You know, the fact that you had over leveraged were underprepared, you know, you know, I, I think of that particularly in the context of the airlines. Um, nobody, nobody is, holding um, over-aggressive managers' feet to the fire to say, hey, you, you weren't prepared. Um, and, and one of the consequences of that, I think, is businesses will increasingly use bankruptcy as a competitive advantage, that it enables businesses, business leaders to renegotiate. We're seeing this first in you know, retail itself, the next wave will be commercial real estate. But if we keep moving up the food chain, then we get into some interesting issues like states. You know, if tax revenue from real estate is collapsing, um, the pressure on states to, to file for bankruptcy is going to intensify. Well, that might be one of the, you know, a lot of people have proposed this is, uh, you know, with the amount of debt um, that we've seen taken on at all levels, you know, corporate, state, <clears throat> federal levels over the last 40 years, um, you know, as a, as a byproduct of interest rates falling and, you know, very uh, loose monetary policy, th- there's only, you know, so many ways uh, to, to get through those, those debt issues. And uh, that's very interesting to me to think, you know, People, you know, proposed debt jubilees um, is, is going to be one way that we'll see. But it'd be interesting to, to, to see that companies decide, OK, in order to compete with so-and-so who went bankrupt, we're going to have to do, do the same thing because they've, they've renegotiated all their debt. And so now they're in a competitive uh, advantage to us. Um, how, how do you, um, I guess, think about it? the other the other point, too, I, and I'm really glad you you brought up private equity, because talk about illusionists, right? I think probably they're some of the most successful illusionists over the last 10 years. And public companies have kind of taken on that private equity model of let's, let's use debt to, to, to pay off, uh, you know, equity shareholders. Um, I want to try and bring this around though to another sector. Um, To me, one of, you know, if you think about which sector uh, is benefited the most from all this illusion, we talked about social media and um, you know influencers, and the companies that have provided the platforms for those influencers um, can be seen in some ways to be illusionists themselves. What are your thoughts about big tech as illusionists that might be facing some scrutiny going forward? So, you know, we're already seeing bipartisan support to rein them in. You know, it's the, the one thing in Washington that you can get uh, Republicans and Democrats on the same side of the table. 
Um, and it, it is about power. They, they have become too powerful. You know, forget the, the issue of profits. It, it's, it's all about power. And, and so I think that what you're likely to see is that as realism takes charge over illusion, the platforms that exist today are going to really struggle. Um, they're going to become easy targets. Um, and, and remember that, that networks are only as effective as the confidence in those networks. You know, that, that, uh, there's, again, reflexivity in networks. And so I think that the, the, the danger is that, you know, some of these networks become the next MySpace and, and that we, we move away from them. Um, you know, you're already seeing um, sort of the balkanization of Twitter as, as people move further and further into their own, um, their, their own private networks. Uh, you know, you, you, you sort of see that in Reddit with, you know, one subreddit after another. Um, and so that the networks themselves become become challenging, and there and you know there, there's a sort of an over proliferation of them. Uh, so I, I think there's a there's a shakeout that's coming in that space, but I but I think it's important to to look at it as part of this bigger you know ending crescendo of the age of illusion, and and that's you know media. Is is a such a cool indicator of peaks in in broader confidence. You know, radio, television, uh, heck, Morse code. We can even go back that far. But but those are all indicators of extreme peaks in sentiment. And I think social media, with hindsight, financial historians are going to look at that and, and see the same thing that it was it was part of a bigger platform. And I think we are seeing it, like you said, in terms of um, you track Google Trends very closely. And, and to me, that's a fascinating, another real-time um, kind of example of social mood and a lot of these things. And, and I think you, you noted recently that influencers peaked a while ago. And then I think it was last week or the week before we saw, you know, Kim Kardashian tweet that she took her family to a private island for them to try and... Um, get together and get through these difficult times. And it's just such a tone deaf, uh, you know, type of thing when, when people are truly suffering uh, in ways that, that she can't imagine. There was, there was a backlash against that. Um, and, and so I think we're, you know, potentially seeing it there. But uh, I'm also curious to understand um, your thoughts, if, if you have any, about the actual business models of a lot of these companies. I mean, Many of them are built on advertising and advertisers spend X amount on the belief that their dollars are being spent. Um, you know, are, they're getting a good return on their investment. Um, there have been some, you know, uh, stories I haven't gotten a ton of notice, but they're, they're from you know, insiders in the industry that have suggested that the whole online advertising uh, platform itself is uh, a form of illusion um, that's that's uh, you know making advertisers believe they're getting a lot more for their money than they actually are. Do you have any you know thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think that you know we're going to see this this illusion you know be exposed that a lot of companies were wasting a lot of money on these platforms, thinking that they were getting. Um, something that they didn't. And so, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and, and I think you recently, I, I can't remember the, the specific tweet, but you had a great example in the advertising space from the FT of, a, of an organization that to me perfectly um, captured sort of that, that Japanese real estate moment uh, with online realist, with online advertisers, that that sense that this, this small startup was suddenly worth more than all of the um, established incumbents, 
And that, that to me was just a huge warning sign. Yeah. Well, you, you do such a great job of pointing out those kind of sentiment signals to me. I mean, I, I'm reading a bunch of this stuff and tweeting it, but I love the metaphor with, with you know, Japan, uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar in the, the late 80s to 1990, you know, the Japanese real estate market, you know, went berserk, stock market went berserk. And, uh, you know, the, the stock market still is whatever, 30% below that peak it set in 1990. Um, but, the, the the mindset that was surrounding um, that real estate boom is is fascinating, and it, it does echo in, in some things that we're seeing. I have to you know now ask you. I mean, because you've been on top of this more than anybody else is you know tracking and bringing to my attention what's going on in the world of SPACs. Um, what is it about um, you know the popularity of SPACs? that is is so i guess meaningful to you in terms of social mood so so let's let's start with what they're called blank check companies so you just stop and think about the wording and what that says about confidence that we are prepared to to give someone a blank check and not insignificant blank checks and then you look at everybody who's created one you know, we, we've, we've had the usual suspects from finance, but then we had this wave of sports celebrities, political figures. Um, you know, I, I joke that SPACs became this uh, sort of vanity license plate that, you know, if you could have one, you did. And then you look at what did they put their money into? Into, you know, EVs and space. And so... Both of those representing this this new frontier mindset. And so to me, it is just such a magical coming together of of mania upon mania upon mania. It's sort of this this, fantasy cube of of sentiment. And, And so it just became a question of, you know, when is this going to just exhaust from an ex- from a just from a speculative perspective, and and it's wild. You you know you talk about Google Trends showing you when the top was. You know it, it's it's the first week of October. Spacs, you know, Spac spoke. It's it's done. And and I just and the, the challenge with those is those sorts of frenzies is they never come back the way they did. Yeah, and and to me, it's the uh, the SPACs are you, you kind of pointed this out the intersection of of uh, illusion um, in the financial markets paired with influencers, right? Because you're yeah. getting the only way you're going to write a blank check is to it to an in, somebody who's influential enough to command that type of uh, you know uh, confidence. Yeah, I don't think we we've, we've ever monetized celebrity status as well as we did with SPACs. And, and to me, you know, uh, in terms of these market signals that you look at, I, I look at SPACs and the popularity of SPACs, uh, which is totally unprecedented. You've, you've, I, I, one of my favorite things that you've written is you look at the chart of uh, SPAC volumes per year, and we're going to look, you know, a few years uh, from now, we're going to look back and it's going to look like a middle finger on the chart. <laughs> That's just the perfect way to to think about this. So, what is it about um, SPACs, or is there some type of like a uh, a magazine cover type of indicator thing where you look at SPACs and say, "Hey, this is just about as uh, euphoric as sentiment gets." So, there are only you know I, I think things come out to play at different levels of confidence. You know, that, that we are interested at different investments, different products, only at a particular level of mood. I, I, I don't think people think enough about what I, what I call confidence elasticity and how things, how demand changes with confidence. And so when I look at SPACs, they are a product where demand comes out only when the air is rarefied, only when the party is at it's 2 a.m. in the morning and everybody's drunk. So there's a there's a timing element to SPACs 
that I think is really valuable in, in its expression of sentiment. That these these things only happen at particular times. And so that's the that to me is the, the greatest value of, of SPACs is this is this is telling us it's it's two AM in the morning and everybody has had way too much to drink. Well, and you look back at the 2000 mania, you know, the last time we saw IPOs go really berserk and, you know, people were uh, willing to invest in, you know, anything with a dot com on it uh, and eyeballs. And, and that was just a sign. It didn't, you know, no profits, no problem. Um, today, it seems like the SPAC craze is even more, uh, more of a, a euphoric sign than that because people are giving their money. I, we don't even care what you do with it. Uh, no, it's not. It, it, go, ahead. go ahead. No, and, and it has the other similarity of the of 2000 where you're seeing the grown adults in the room capitulate. So when the head of you know Disney's theme park says, I'm going to go work for Virgin Galactic instead, to me is a great indicator that even you know even the adults have to play. You know, the, the guys that should know better. It's like, come on. Right. They can't well, you know, it, it, when they can't resist, uh yeah, it's it's uh, reminiscent of um, you know, a, a lot of those things we saw. Was it uh you know, AOL Time Warner merger, um, you know, which kind of marked the peak of dot com mania. Um, yeah, my, my favorite is George Shashin, you know, going from the head of Accenture to be the CEO of pets.com, of uh, not pets.com, Webvan. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, when and when you can't resist, uh, you know, we, we saw it with GM and, you know, their partnership with, was it, uh, was it with Nikola? Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, they just can't resist uh, taking part. Um, I want to ask you too, I mean, I guess similar to this SPAC craze, we've seen a craze in uh, call options buying. And I'm really curious to know how this just huge move towards speculative trading on the part of people who have never had an interest in the markets before, how does that that fit in with where we are in terms of social mood and, and this movement? So first of all, I, I have to give you enormous credit for really bringing all of that to my attention. Um, you sooner and better than anybody I know has shown a light into that activity, and more important, it's its impact on on market prices um, just incredibly valuable to me. But if if we think about the progression of investing in terms of inherent leverage and risk taking. You know, call options are, you know, all downside with upside, you know, the, 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 the asymmetric risk to them. And so they're, they're, they're to me an indication of, of speculative fever where I am buying because I am so certain price is going to go up that I'm now looking to do that with as much leverage as I possibly can. And so I, as a retail investor, you know, buying stocks is boring. The the real money is in, in call options and that we're seeing so many and, and honestly seeing, you know, big, big institutional folks playing the same game speaks to a a broader speculative frenzy than I think the marketplace overall is is really aware of. And and as you've pointed out, their their ability to to move price is staggering. And so you see, you know, from from a chart perspective, this archipelago of of accelerating mania. Um, I, recently, we saw that in lumber uh, late this summer where the gaps every day just kept growing. And that that is saying to me that, 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 that momentum, that the inherent um, energy in, the, in, the tr- in this trade is, is moving to climax. And it's just a question of when does it exhaust? But I, but I really see that today 
with all of this call option buying. Um, and I and I and I worry that you know that that the challenge with it is once price turns, the evisceration is extraordinary, and that 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 asymmetry of risk becomes devastating to those that are getting it at this point. Yeah, and uh, you know it. It seems to me, yeah, that the, the, the speculative euphoria is more extreme probably than I've ever seen, you know, in terms of the call options and SPACs. Uh, to me, I just I have to mention, um, you know, Davey Day Trader, because I do think he represents the intersection of this illusionist uh, visionary paired with influencer. Right. I mean, he's, oh. he might be the, the, the perfect example of, of the, these two things coming together. Yeah, he's a human Venn diagram of, of all of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so with with all of this, this kind of speculative fervor, clearly, you know, I, I want to try and relate this to the to the K-shaped recovery because I'm curious to know where you think we are in terms of confidence at both ends of the K. Uh, it seems like confidence at the top of the K is is off the charts. Um, but confidence on, on that lower end of the K, which which seems to be getting you know forgotten in a lot of circles, uh, is at an extreme low. Does it? Do you see those um, converging uh, over the next you know however long in the quarters? Yeah. So I, I think of America as being the the home of the invincible and the home of the hopeless. That that we we've, we've gutted the middle and you you've either ridden an extraordinarily wave up or you've been taken down by it you know a, a, the other side of that wave um you know when i as i look at everything today jesse i i feel like we are in a in a partial rebound state in aggregate and so the, the question becomes, can we elevate those at the bottom up? Does the, does the generosity of those at the top extend back into the, the bottom? Do we see jobs come back? Do we see um, concern, political concern for those who have, have less than um, – because I, I think that for the those at the top to survive this, um, we're going to have to do something for those at the bottom. The, the gap is too broad. The, the risk is that, is that that doesn't happen, that the, the recovery that is underway fails to now accelerate. And I know, you know, sitting here on Monday, November 9th, that's hard to imagine, given all of the good news that 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 investors have have you know, priced in um, post the election, but I but I really am concerned that this K shaped recovery now runs the risk of turning into a lower shaped H, and that the the euphoria faces a, a reconciliation with reality, and you know God help us if this this recovery were to now stumble um, because the underlying anger, the underlying hopelessness that exists that honestly to me was expressed in this election that seems to be invisible to people. Um, there, there, there's going to be outrage um, because that's the only way people will be able to express adequately express the sense of hopelessness that they, they now feel. And again, it's on the right and the left. This is not a, a, a partisan pitch. Yeah, I just I'm curious to know too. It does seem like uh, the the top of the K, you know, is is um, is probably due for a confidence um, reset or at least a reversion. Um, do you see the the bottom of the K in terms of confidence? Um, uh, bottoming out anytime soon, or uh, you know, not in terms of um, the economy, but in terms of their sense of hopelessness. 
Um, in terms of it bottoming? I yeah, I mean, because, I, you know, I, I'm just thinking of a tweet that you shared a couple of weeks ago. I think we've seen several different media outlets suggest, you know, here is the, the way to combat that sense of hopelessness. And it does, you know, seem darkest before the dawn for a lot of a lot of people, I guess, um, you know, can, can maybe try and take hope in that. Is, is there any um, it would also seem natural to me that if the if the top of the K is going to see some reversion, the bottom should see some as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would like to say that I've seen the bottom. Um, you know, I think there would be some who would say that the, you know, the, the, the George Floyd protests marked the bottom for those on the left. Um, but I, but I worry honestly about how those who um, feel defeated by what happened um, in the election last week, um, how the, we haven't seen yet seen any manifestation of, of that sense of hopelessness. And so, you know, I, I hate to be looking for trouble, but I, I'm, I, I need the passage of time to be able to know that we have gotten through this um, gracefully and that, that amid all of the, the anger on both sides that, that we can come together with, with common ground. That would give me the greatest sense that those on the bottom have hit the low, that, that their confidence is, is rising. You know, the, you're, you're absolutely right. I think you, you probably do need to see how we get through this. I, you know, I, I, I timed this interview because I thought, who would I want to talk to to understand, um, you know, what the election means uh, and how we can think of it going forward? But it is still a little bit too soon to, to try and draw any any broad conclusions. I do think you're, you're absolutely right to, to, to think that there you know, is is probably some sort of fallout uh, related related to that sense of um, hopelessness for a lot of people who, on you know, on the uh, on the other side of the, the election. There, I, I want to change change up. I I've taken up a ton of your time, Peter, and it's been super valuable to me. But I, I want to finish with something a little bit might sound a little bit off topic, but you are a teacher. That's evident um, to me in your writing and uh, your teaching through your writing has been extremely valuable to me. How, how does, how does teaching or even just thinking of yourself as a teacher help you to synthesize ideas or just even be a more effective socionomist, if that's the right term? Um, you know, one of the things that I've learned having to hold attention for an hour and a half twice a week is that stories matter more than facts that, metaphors, analogies, um, taking complexity and simplifying it is vital to being heard. Um, you know, it, it sounds clunky and cumbersome now, but, you know, the, the first label that I put on the K-shaped recovery was the, the work from home confidence divide. And my God, does that, you know, that just doesn't sell. That doesn't, that doesn't work. That doesn't resonate. Um, and so, I feel as a teacher that if I can frame things in a way that my students can understand them, they're going to learn a whole lot more from me than if I demand that they come to where I am. And I, I love trying to figure out how to make something um, easier for people to understand um, I, I would also say that I learn so much from from my students. You know, the, a, a topic I, I never plan the class more than conceptually what it is that I want to get covered, and I learn so much by letting the the conversation flow based on their questions, based on their inputs. You know, a student will say something that leads us down a rabbit hole where I will I will uncover something that 
is so cool and clear that I never thought of before. Um, uh, you know, that, that we, we, we communicate through adjectives, for example. You know, hot tells us a whole lot more than 90 degrees outside. Um, so the, and then the, the, the last thing, Jesse, is um, I am humbled by my students' optimism. Um, nothing makes me more hopeful about the future than being in a room with, uh, you know, 18 to 21 year olds week after week after week. Um, I don't know where we go from here, but I am excited by what I see in terms of their, their resilience. I mean, this is a generation of, of young people who've been through crisis after crisis. Um, you know, uncertainty is their, their normal. Um, and I, I think that resilience has yet to play out um, on a bigger stage. So I, I'm, I'm really excited by what, what they will bring to our future. Well, that's just the perfect message to leave it on. I, I, before I, I let you go, I have to ask, uh, or, or I guess uh, let the audience um, know where uh, they can keep up with you and your ideas. So, so they can find me at um, peteratwater.com, which is my, my website, um, my commentaries um, that I publish, the research that I uh, offer for investors comes from uh, financialinsights.com. Uh, with insights spelled I-N-S-Y-G-H-T-S. And I really recommend everybody follow Peter on on, on Twitter, um, Peter Atwater. And uh, he's one of the most valuable Twitter accounts that I follow, totally underfollowed. It's amazing to me that you know Peter doesn't have hundreds of thousands of followers because whenever there's a big story of the day, it's your, your Twitter account that I look to for analysis and, and understanding. So, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been super valuable to me. I, I know the audience will get a ton out of it. Um, so just thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate the opportunity, Jesse, to catch up. It's been great. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.